I think that's it as far as announcements. So open your Bibles to Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel. You can open your Bible to Isaiah if you want. Ezekiel 43. I was thinking of Isaiah 19 because it's a passage that talks about Egypt and uh, it's an interesting passage. But anyway, Ezekiel 43, we're looking at verses 6 through 27 tonight. Sooner or later, someone is going to tell you that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. That's correct. A lot of words aren't found in the Bible. For example, the word Bible is not found in the Bible. But we use it anyway to describe the Bible. So the next time someone tells you that Trinity is not found in the Bible, tell them they're using a word to describe the Bible that isn't found in the Bible. And then just walk away. Likewise, omniscience, which means all-knowing, omnipotence, which means all-powerful, omnipresence, which means present everywhere, those are words not found in the Bible, but uh, we use them to describe the attributes of God. We don't have to see a specific word in the Bible in order for the concept it describes to be true. God must reveal himself to us if he is to be known. He is outside of us. He is transcendent. He has to tell us who He is and what He's like. He reveals Himself to us as one God existing in three co-equal and co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are not three separate gods. They are one God, three persons. Here's a sampling of verses where God reveals Himself in the Bible as a trinity or as some people call it, a tri-unity. Matthew 28:19 Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13:14 The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then Jude verses 20 and 21 But you beloved building yourselves up on your most holy faith praying in the Holy Spirit keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. At the baptism of Jesus Christ, the Father spoke from heaven while the Spirit descended upon the Lord on earth in the form of a dove. There have been many attempts to develop illustrations of the Trinity. However, none of the popular illustrations are completely accurate. They all fall short because we're talking about something that is incomprehensible to our human finite minds. We don't need to have an illustration of it. It is God's revelation of himself. The closest I can come to trying to understand it is not really an illustration, but it might be helpful. A human being is one person, but we think of ourselves as a trichotomy of body, soul, and spirit. Don't try to develop that any farther, but I mean, you yourself are body, soul, and spirit. Uh, And so you can at least understand the concept of three in one. Uh, It falls short of an illustration, but uh, it it is helpful. It simply shows that the idea of a trinity or a triunity is not something far-fetched. Now, all this is introduction because one of the most interesting things here in verse uh, the opening verses, uh, well, starting with verse 6, is that we're going to see an example of the trinity. Uh, Ezekiel 43, 6, Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. Now, we've established in our previous studies that the man standing beside Ezekiel, his guide on this tour of the millennial temple, was none other than Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnation 
appearance. Ezekiel is being carried along, you'll remember, by the Holy Spirit. Now he's going to be spoken to by God the Father. And so we have the Son standing next to him, the Spirit carrying him along, and the Father speaking to him. John Gill, who's an ancient commentator, put it like this. He says, The man whom he saw at first with the measuring line in his hand and with whom he had been all along and had seen him measure the house and all belonging to it, he stood by him as the mediator between God and him, as the medium of communication with him, as the advocate with the Father. He stood by him to interpret what was said to him, to guide him further into the knowledge of divine things, to assist him, protect and defend him, to continue him in fellowship with God and to preserve him in grace to glory. Here is an appearance of the three persons of the Godhead, the Father speaking to the prophet out of the house, the Son in human form standing by him, and the Spirit of the Lord who had took him up from the ground and had brought him into the inner court. And so the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, in an Old Testament appearance, thus takes a position like that of a mediator, giving Ezekiel a prophetic glimpse of the first coming of Jesus as a man to save us by dying on the cross. It's sort of a vision within the vision to encourage uh, Ezekiel. How much of this he understood uh, is unknown. We know in the New Testament that, I believe it's in Peter's epistle, he says the, the prophets desired to look into these things. They didn't always understand the things that God was telling them because the revelation of God is progressive. It, it builds and builds and builds until we get to the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And so uh, I don't know how much of this Ezekiel would have understood, but what a beautiful illustration to us and picture to us of the Trinity. And the Trinity, we would say, in action. Uh, you know, the son standing by the, the, the prophet, giving him insight to the father's words and the spirit, of course, carrying it all along. Now, the father spoke to Ezekiel, beginning in verse 7, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. If you've been with us for uh, our earlier studies, our way earlier studies in Ezekiel, you know that the Israelites uh, not only practiced idolatry, they set up idols in the temple itself. They brought the idols in. It's, it's kind of a, a picture to us of how we always, when we sin, we, we always think we're only going to sin a little and that we're not going to do anything worse. Uh, and then because God is gracious and He doesn't just strike us dead from uh, the get-go, uh, we get away with things and we keep moving. And the Israelites, you know, it's a picture of that because they started with uh, idols in the high places and in the groves and kind of out where people might even be ashamed you know, to practice idolatry and, and its sacrifices. But eventually they kept, you know, that got a little bit tiresome to, hey, honey, what do you want to do tonight? Let's have an idolatrous ritual. Oh, man, I, I don't want to, I don't feel like climbing up the hill tonight. And, and so they would put it closer and closer until finally it was right in the temple. They could do idolatry right in the temple. God says there was just a wall between him and them. 
in terms of what they were doing. And it's, it's, uh, you know, whenever you, whenever we or we see someone who's just sinning, we think, well, how do you get to that point? I mean, what happened? Did you just wake up in the morning and start to sin? And usually the answer is no. You've been developing it in your, first in your heart and then you bring it forth and, and, and it's just something that, uh, you know, your defenses get broken down. And so God says uh, they had set up idols in the temple. They thought that just having a wall between him and them would be good enough. That's how their thinking had deteriorated when they shouldn't have been doing it at all. Their kings, he said, had defiled God's holy place. On account of idolatry, God had sent his people into captivity. This is the reason, uh, uh, really, the spiritual reason behind the Babylonian captivity. It lasted as long as it did because they owed God a certain number of Sabbaths. That was also something that that was going on. It was a 70-year captivity because they had failed to keep the Sabbath for uh, 70 uh, different times. But uh, really, it was idolatry. And so God's glory had departed from them. Even after they returned and rebuilt the temple, God's glory did not return. This was going to be a long season of discipline against the nation of Israel continuing even today. Now, he also refers to the carcasses of the kings. And according to the research I did, this has to do with the fact that at least 14 of the kings of Judah were buried in tombs near the temple. Death, which came through man's sin, defiled the area around the temple. But these guys had themselves buried there to speak of their glory. Uh, and yet it robbed the glory of God because God didn't want to have anything to do with death. The whole, as we've seen, the whole purpose in one sense, of, especially of the millennial temple, is to show the separation between sinful man and a holy God. And, and so the kings came along and they said, well, we're kings. And so, we, you know, we deserve, you know, uh, we, I can't get anybody to build a pyramid for me, but maybe we could be, you know, buried in a tomb right here on the, uh, you know, next to the temple. Uh, and that'll be kind of a hallowed thing. And in our natural way, we think, oh, yeah, that makes sense, you know, because you're a king, you're, you're above everybody else, and you should be buried in proximity to the temple. And God said, no, that's, no this is not a burial site. The, all that death does is remind you of why the temple is here. We need to keep this site consecrated and holy and separate. You're ruining the symbolism. And one thing God doesn't like is when you ruin His symbolism. He gets upset about that. You remember Moses... Moses, what a guy. I mean, look at all Moses puts up with his entire career. And then one little mistake he makes. The, you know, he, the first time God tells him to strike the rock and water will come out of that rock and will bring water to the children of Israel. And then the second time, God's very clear. He says, now, same problem, need water, people complaining. He says, Moses, now hear me, listen to me. I want you to speak to the rock. And I think God enunciated it really well. Speak to the rock and water will come out. And Moses was bummed. He had a temper. Even though he was the meekest man on the earth, you know, he could, he could have a temper. And he says, you stiff-necked people. And he struck the rock a second time. And God graciously allowed the water to come out. But then he took Moses aside and he said, basically, because you didn't speak to the rock, you struck it. Guess what? You're not going into the promised land. I can't let you go in. You've defiled this. And, and of course, we get to the New Testament... Paul the Apostle brings it all together when he says that rock was Christ. And the idea was that he had to be smitten for our iniquities so that we could just speak to him and receive living water. 
And so you don't go striking the rock a second time. You just don't do that. And so God very serious about his illustrations. And this should concern us a little bit because in the New Testament we're called living epistles. We're the ones that illustrate God. Ooh, okay. Good thing he doesn't strike people dead anymore. Or maybe he does. That's what John said in his book. He said, I don't know if this is a sin unto death. Don't ask. Just leave that to God. And so the kings had defiled the burial site. Here's a thought. If idolatry is so extensive, if it's so pervasive that it has taken God more than 2,500 years of discipline to root it out of his people, can we take it lightly? If God identifies someone or something in my life that is an idol, then I ought to expect it to be extensive and pervasive. I'd better defend against it coming back and once again usurping the place that God occupies in my heart. Another thing we see in these verses is that God desires to dwell among us. Not that God needed anything or was lacking in fellowship, but the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit determined they would create mankind in order to enjoy fellowship with us. As far as we can tell, that fellowship didn't last too long in the Garden of Eden before our parents failed the one test of their love for God. Everything God has done from that moment about 7,000 years ago until today has been an unfolding drama of redemption to bring us back into fellowship with God. There are various theories of history, uh, and and I don't want to go into them because I don't know any of them. But anyway, I, I could have read them on Wikipedia, but I chose not to. Anyway... And so people have a theory of history. What is history about? And, you know, is it cyclical? And is it this? And is it that? Marx, the Marxists have a theory of history and the atheists have a theory of history. There's no real theory of history. History is the unfolding of God's redemption of the human race. God creates man in the Garden of Eden. He says, I want to have fellowship with you. I don't need to, but I want to. It's going to be good for you. I'm just going to give you this one test because love can't be forced. It must be free. And they fail that test. And from that time until today, everything that's been going on throughout human history, nation after nation, individual after individual, sure, there's rabbit trails here and there, but the real story is the bringing of the Savior that was promised at that moment. When man sinned in the garden, God said, this is bad, but I can do something about it. Here's the good news. I'm going to come as a man and take care of this for you. And everything that's happened in the world since then has built up to the coming of Jesus Christ and to His coming again. There's a lot of other things we can learn and understand from watching the History Channel, uh, but it all is subordinate to the redemption of the human race. I, I use that phrase a lot, the unfolding drama of redemption. It's really, uh, it's actually the title of a marvelous book by a guy named W. Graham Scrogi. He surveys the entire Bible to show God's plan of redemption unfolding. If you're the kind of person who doesn't mind a big, thick book that is an overview that looks at the whole Bi- the Bible as a whole and shows the story that God is telling, I would highly recommend it. Here are a couple of choice quotes. Jesus' human pedigree, His redemptive program and His divine purpose, which are revealed in the New Testament historically, are revealed in the Old Testament prophetically not in a general or doubtful manner, but in great and exact detail. Man the sinner needs someone who will redemptively represent him. He needs someone who will reveal God to him. He needs someone who, with authority and effect, will rule over him. In other words, man needs a priest, 
a prophet and a king, a priest to represent him before God, a prophet to reveal God to him, and a king to take control of and to rule in and over the whole kingdom of his life. In vain will man find such a one among his fallen fellows, but in Christ the need is supplied in every respect. It's a great read. I highly recommend Scroge's book. Now we next read that Ezekiel's description of the temple could have a powerful effect on the exiles. Remember, this is the 6th century B.C., Uh, They had received the news that the temple at Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, had fallen, had been destroyed. Uh, It was wiped out. Jerusalem was was under Babylonian control. Earlier groups of exiles had been brought to Babylon and Ezekiel is ministering to them. And now we see that his description of this future temple was intended to have a profound effect in their lives. Verse 10, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple." Now, we know that when the Jews returned from exile, they did not rebuild the temple according to this pattern. They, they had this, they had the, the prophecy of Ezekiel, but the Jews, when they came back uh, and started to rebuild Solomon's temple, sometimes it's called Zerubbabel's temple, it later became Herod's temple, uh, this, they did not redesign it according to Ezekiel's specifications. They understood that Ezekiel was talking about the millennial temple, a future temple. And so what the prophet is saying, or what God is saying through the prophet here, is that a clear presentation of the future temple to the exiles in Babylon is going to explain to them the necessity of God's long centuries of discipline. They would see how they had offended the holiness of God and what was required to restore the fellowship that had been broken by their sin. They would also gain strength from the hope that there would indeed be this future millennial temple on the earth that would be filled with the glory of God and from which God Himself would rule over both them and the earth. And it's kind of interesting, uh, in these verses here, in verses 10 and 11, he says, he says, look, I want you to, kind of, he says, I want you to start talking to them about this temple and if they are ashamed, in other words, if they're starting to get it, if they're starting to understand, hey, this is about me, it's because we've sinned and, and our nation has sinned, he says, then reveal more of it to them and show them how that through it and through its ordinances, one day I'm going to bring the nation full circle and fulfill all of my purposes, all of my promises. Uh, and even there, he gives them kind of a progressive revelation. He says, he says if, they'll, if they'll respond to the Word, then give them more of the Word. If they understand the design of the temple and, and what it means, then give them the whole design. And so it's a very interesting kind of thing that God is doing. We read this, as I've said before, and we think, man, this is driving me crazy, all of this description of the temple. You know, I, 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 it just... Unless you're an architect or an engineer, it's it's not all that interesting. And that's why most of the time we do chapters 40 through 48 in 10 minutes. You know, and but there's so much great stuff here. Now, this phrase, the law of the temple, seems to mean this is the purpose of the temple. 
And I would say it's to reveal sin and repair, uh, repair the break between man and God. Uh, we learn from this that there is power in just the reading of God's Word. And so, you know, God was saying, look, I want you to give them a little bit of the, the Word I'm speaking to you of the temple and watch for it to have an effect. And, and all of you that got saved later in your life, uh, you weren't saved as a child, one of the brothers was telling me this uh, just before we started that his little three-year-old boy just accepted the Lord tonight, you know, praise or today just asked the Lord into his heart and praise the Lord for that. I believe that there's no, no doubt about that. But at the same time, many of us came to the Lord later in life and in some in some way, God used his word. His word became alive to us. It became powerful to us. It revealed things to us. Uh, and so really just the reading of God's word uh, is a powerful thing. Now, when the millennial temple is established and God is enthroned in it, daily services will begin. Ezekiel is given a description of the altar and the procedures for consecrating it. Verse 13, these are the measurements of the altar in cubits. And just in case we had forgotten, he says the cubit is one cubit and a handbreadth. The base one cubit high and one cubit wide with a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower edge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits. And the width of the ledge, one cubit. The altar hearth is four cubits high with four horns extending upward from the earth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, square at its four corners. The ledge, 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides with a rim of a half a cubit around it. Its base, one cubit all around, and its steps face toward the east. Now, the height of the altar, I'm told, will be 19 feet, but part of this is below ground. The altar hearth, 21 feet square, will be reached by a flight of steps facing east. And so the sacrificial altar will be approached from the east. Previous altars were approached from the south. Now there will be stairs leading up to the altar, not a ramp as in previous temples. The top of the altar is now described by the Hebrew word Ariel, meaning Lion of God. Differences in the build of these items, like the altar, continue to establish that this is a real future temple that has yet to be built. It's not symbolic or allegorical in any way. It's literal. I, I, I don't think we have a problem with that. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of sincere Christians uh, who really don't have a handle at all on prophecy because they believe that it's an allegory, that it's spiritual. Um, they don't take it literally. Uh, and, and when you see something, when you see Ezekiel going to great lengths to describe this, and it's different from the temple that existed, uh, you, you understand that this is a real future temple that is yet to be built. Now, once the altar is built and in place... It's going to be consecrated, or we would say dedicated, for seven days with a series of offerings. And that's how our chapter ends. Let me just read verses 18 through 27. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, These are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made, for sacrificing burnt offerings on it, and for sprinkling blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are of the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You should take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. 
Then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering. And they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priest shall throw salt on them. They will offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Uh, Every day for seven days you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. And they shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priest shall offer your burn offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord God. Now, we've mentioned quite a bit before, and we'll see again, that the priests of the Millennial Temple will be Levites, but only of the family of Zadok. This has to do with a promise made to them for their loyalty back in the time of David and Solomon. After seven days of offering bulls, goats, and rams, the priests will then begin to present the people's burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar. This process marks the full resumption of God having fellowship with His people on the earth. It says here that God will accept them. These sacrifices will point Israelites to Christ who will have given them access to the Father. And as we tell you each week during this section, yes, there will be real animal sacrifices during the millennium. They don't save anyone. And so they don't take away anything from the final once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. They only show that there's a separation between God and man and how it must be breached, uh, or must be bridged, rather, by accepting Christ's sacrifice. And so you notice as we were reading through there, it says, I want you to do this to consecrate the altar, to make atonement for the altar. So a lot of these early sacrifices are to just say, this, this is what's necessary on planet Earth, sinful planet surrounded by sinful men, in order for the altar even to function in God's mind. And, and so he purifies the altar for six, seven days, and he says, now you guys can start bringing offerings to me. And they speak of the separation between God and man caused by sin that was overcome by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, and I think we're through this now, but I have to remind us each time. Once you realize that the Old Testament sacrifices didn't save you, they were never about saving you, you get to the book of Romans, Paul says, how do people get saved? They get saved the way Abraham got saved. They believe God. And it's accounted to them for righteousness. Yes, he offered sacrifices, but they didn't save him or keep him saved. It was something else entirely. And so in the millennium, there will be sacrifices. I think it's weird too, if you want me to admit. I I think it's weird. Why do we have to sacrifice animals in the millennium? It seems so nice. Lions are laying down with lambs and they're so cute. You know, you go to the Chafee Zoo and there won't be any cages, you know, and stuff. And everybody will be kind of wandering around. But there will still be animal sacrifice because man is still a sinner in need of salvation. There will be multiplied billions of people being born during the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And all of them will need an example of the separation between God and man. Maybe more than we need it today because God will be dwelling among men. And, and everything will be pretty much, as we used to say, hunky-dory. 
And so, you know, to, you know, you think it's tough telling people today that they're sinners and they need salvation. What if it was the millennium and everything was perfect? I mean, you're having a hard time. The whole world seems like it's ready to explode. If you're not going to get killed by a terrorist, something's going to happen in the Middle East. Nuclear bombs are in your mailbox. I mean, it's crazy. There's economic collapse. Don't drink the water. I mean, everybody's... And you share... Oh, well, you know, whatever. In the millennium, all, every, there's no dangers. The animals don't bother you. You know, the, the, there's no nuclear problem. Everything is pretty cool. You're living for a much longer period of time. It's going to be hard. You would think that there's Jesus. I should accept him as my Savior. Well, why? And, and so these sacrifices will go a long ways towards showing uh, what's really going on in the heart of man. God expected the description of the future temple to affect the exiles, to profoundly affect them. And I just want to close by returning to the point I made earlier, which we all know to be true and believe. When God's word is read, it ought to profoundly affect us in some way. Uh, Sometimes more than others. I'm not saying that every time, you know, the Bible is read, you're going to have the same effect or be at the same place in your life. But we need to hold God's word in high esteem. And in the Psalms, God says that he uh, uh, exalts his word above his own name. And, and uh, it's, it's a fantastic concept. And so we, we want to listen to the word and pay attention to the word and, and have its, uh, let it have its effect so that it doesn't return void in our lives. Uh, and and uh, so whenever we come to a Bible study, come to the Bible ourselves or come to a Bible study, uh, we should take a moment in prayer and get our hearts right or take some time to worship and say, Lord, uh, you know, I want you to profoundly affect me with your word and, and to bring home a message to me uh, and to speak to me. And, uh, and then do uh, what the Lord tells you. Amen? Amen.